1: I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Thursday, January 5th. Yes, it's day three of the chaos in the House of Representatives over electing a new speaker, a stalemate within the majority party that the country hasn't seen in 100 years. And yes, we will talk some about the Beltway politics and machinations that are going on with it, There's some breaking news about that just in the last few minutes. But primarily for this segment, we will try to take a different tack and talk about who the Republican voters are, who these 20 congressional holdouts represent. We've spoken in the past on this show about Donald Trump as a reflection of Republican America, not an exception to it, since each time a Mitch McConnell or a Lindsey Graham or yes, a Kevin McCarthy tries to walk away from Trump's excesses, like blame him for January 6th, which they all did, they get pulled back into kissing his ring. Why? Because their constituents in the main take Trump's side, not to mention people like Liz Cheney, who got voted out altogether for that reason. And so we can look at Lauren Boebert, Andy Biggs, Scott Perry, in Congress and say, ooh, they're going rogue. But really, they represent a lot of American Republicans, maybe most of them. So, why is this happening in people terms? We have a great guest to help us answer this. It's Asted Herndon, national political reporter for the New York Times. Now, some of you may know the podcast that he hosted for the Times during the run up to the midterm elections. The podcast was called The Run Up. And as part of it, he took deep dives into interviews with voters from both parties in a series within his podcast series called The Grassroots that on the Republican side included moments like this. Mm -hmm. Do you
2: think race is a
0: big problem in the country?
2: uh, Oh, yes. Oh, now I do. Absolutely. Oh, sure. Sure. But it's been it's been manufactured.
1: Race is a big problem in this country because it's been manufactured to be that. We'll play some longer clips from the podcast and follow the events in the House as well. Asted, great to have you on with us. Welcome to WNYC.
0: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: This is a Republican voter who you interviewed named Belinda Schoendorf. Uh, Schoendorf, am I saying that right? So briefly, who is she and who's her congressperson, if you know?
0: Uh, well, it actually is that we uh, talked to a bunch of voters uh, in the lead up to our podcast that we called people who participated in Times polling. And Belinda was one of those people. And she's out in New Orleans. I'm not actually sure who her congressperson is off the top of my head. But I remember she was outside of New Orleans in Los- in Louisiana. Right. And she was one of the voters we talked to and ended up that we had an extended conversation with her at the beginning of the midterms and closer to the election, about how she was specifically viewing the race as an ardent Trump supporter.
1: And so here she is, folks, talking a little bit about her political evolution. It is the end of this clip, uh, to just uh, tease something that I'm going to ask Estet about afterwards, but she talks here about her political evolution after being raised by parents who are Democrats.
2: So let's see. I probably changed in my 20s, which would have been in the maybe in the, uh, the 80s, I guess, <clears throat> by the time Ronald Reagan was there. And he would say things that really, really, really made sense. He said, I used to be a Democrat, but the Democrat Party left me. And I thought, well, I wonder what he meant by that. And then I started paying attention. And then what really, really got me was when Obama was in the White House and the whole health care thing. So that made me start. We started going to meetings.
1: It was that last part, Ested, that really grabbed me. She had already become a Republican way back in the 80s, but what got her to start going to meetings was opposition to the Affordable Care Act. So I don't know if you got all the way there with her in particular, but can you put some meat on those bones about what was so objectionable about health care, and that, of course, is policy, to this voter who centered her Catholic faith generally, which does support generous health care benefits.
0: Yeah, we got there with her and with the number of voters. One of the things that really stuck out when we talked to members of the Republican grassroots for our podcast was that the Obama era was really a lot of their radicalization moments. It was in that healthcare fight. It was in that birtherism conspiracy. It was in a time in which they felt that not only politically but culturally, a liberal liberal majority was frankly drowning them out. And when we talked to Belinda about healthcare specifically, it wasn't a, a, a policy grievance just based in the size of government, though she did have a problem with the rollout and the side and the expansion of government and what she felt uh, Mm -hmm. uh, was too big of a government role. She also felt that it was just a liberal, uh, uh, a, a liberal administration jamming policy after policy, cultural change after cultural change down their throats. And so that's how we ended up talking about race. That's how we ended up talking about a lot of other issues is that it wasn't just a grievance that was limited to healthcare for a number of those Republican voters, it wasn't just the grievance that was limited to immigration. It was a snowballing of those grievances that really uh, accumulated into their support for Donald Trump. What we found was, as you said, kind of in the beginning of how you kicked off this segment, that Donald Trump was a reflection of those grievances. It was not that he uh, kicked them off for many of those voters.
1: Right. So we'll play more of you with... Belinda Schoendorf, explicitly on race coming up. But I want to take a step back and bring it back to what's going on on the House floor today mm-hmm. about Republicans trying to choose a speaker. And and I want to ask you, through the lens of your reporting, who those members represent. So like, I'm looking at a list of all 20, yes. including Andy Biggs of Arizona, Dan Bishop of North Carolina— And it goes down the list, and you just look at the states that they're from. Now, I said Arizona, North Carolina. It's also Georgia, Texas, Florida, Colorado, Virginia, Maryland, Illinois, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Montana. That's a full list of the states the holdouts are from. And when you break it down even more than that, with the very few exceptions of the one from Maryland and the one from Illinois, they're all from the South plus just two from rural parts of the West. They're all white except one, and 17 of the 20 are men. So what can you start to say about the constituents who likely sent these particular 20 members to Congress?
0: Yeah, I I think this is a really important point. For the 20 holdouts, uh, uh, it is important not only to look at their idea, what links them ideologically, but what links those districts together. And I would say that that goes beyond uh, uh, just where those districts are, but most, but also something that we reported on our show when we focused on Wisconsin, something that my colleague Shane Goldmacher has focused on at the times and his reporting is how the increase in gerrymandered districts may not have affected the makeup of the house in terms of margin, but it does really change the type of representatives we get because from all of those 20 representatives, They're all in deeply safe Republican districts that are drawn, even in swing states, in a way Mm -hmm. that makes them completely insulated Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. caring about a swing voter or more, even more so than that, caring about moderate Republicans. And so, what these 20 voters are trying to do, which is also true for some of the people who are backing McCarthy, they have those districts too. But what these 20 voters know is that for many of them, They do not have to answer to the Republican caucus at large, who is their constituents, is really the most hardened versions of the Republican base. I would also say another thing that differs for the Republican base rather than the Democratic one, even even among many Republicans who we would consider more establishment, people who uh, were unsure about their support of Donald Trump, we talked to a man in Michigan like that, they still have a deep problem with Washington Republicans. And they still will endorse a kind of uh, no holds barred political strategy that thumbs their nose at them. And so they are not re- And so what these 20 holdouts are betting on is that they're not going to pay much of an electoral cost for embarrassing Kevin McCarthy or even the Republican Party in DC for a couple days. What they're betting on is that they will pay, they will get, they will reap a benefit from a base that is ready to really push their Washington leadership to embrace kind of new policy investigation goals and and a, a, a kind of Trump wing that's really looking for energy after a disappointing midterms.
1: More Belinda Schoendorf from your podcast. Here's part of an exchange where you had just mentioned that you grew up in a religious environment too. She had been talking about her Catholicism. You said you grew up in a religious environment too, that your father was a Christian pastor in the black church, and then even though you're the journalist and she's the source, she asks you <laughs> a question.
0: So Let me
2: just ask you one thing. When you brought up the black thing, do I come across as racist?
0: Oh, I, don't, I wouldn't say that. Um, but I'm curious, do you think you come off as racist?
2: I hope I don't. You talk about black churches. Some of our best friends have been black around here, and they don't understand they don't understand and i'm in the deep deep south okay they don't understand why the rest of the country is acting like race is a big problem because they don't think they don't think here that they have an issue
0: mm mm-hmm. do you they think race is a big problem in the country
2: uh, oh yes oh now i do absolutely oh sure sure but it's been it's been manufactured
1: so she actually said some of my best friends will let Mm -hmm. that go and assume maybe it's true, but again, it was the end of that clip. White voter, deep South, knows black people in the deep South who thinks racism is not an issue, who think racism is not an issue, and she says race is a manufactured problem in this country. Can you elaborate or say how representative of the larger Republican grassroots block of voters you interviewed that, that is?
0: Oh, I would say that's a representative belief among a larger block of Republicans, both in the reporting we did for the run-up and the reporting I've done, kind of across the Republican uh, base. But you know, what we did in that podcast was really based on uh, conversations and and reporting I had started by going to Trump rallies throughout his administration and in the run and the run-up to his reelection campaign. And when I was having those conversations with his supporters, I was thinking that there is both a nuance that is sometimes missed to Trumpism. Yeah, yeah, a a nuance and a a kind of understanding of people's full identity that makes them come to Trumpism. And at the same time, I also thought that there's a real underrating, that when you ask these people about race, about identity, about why they hold the beliefs that they do, I have often found a willingness to have that discussion. Now, I'm not there trying to change folks' minds. I'm there Uh trying to get a kind of clarity about how they come to their political choices. And I thought that that was gonna be something that was really valuable to share with folks on our show. And so when we had that conversation with Belinda, I really appreciate someone who's willing to be candid about how they see race in this country. And I think that that's actually really rare, but I would say that that belief that it is manufactured, that particularly the 2020 uh, moments maybe went too far, the idea that black people have uh, uh, are, are, are complaining about us, the impacts of slavery that were centuries ago. That is something that came up consistently uh, in our talks with Republican voters. I would also say it comes up in a more close sense too. When you ask people about their Trump formation time, when it goes back to that Obama era, it almost certainly comes back to the changing demographics in the country. We started our podcast by really zeroing in on the Republican 2012 memo and the demographic changes that really guided the party's beliefs in that time. And that's why we did that, because for Republican voters, it is not at the back of their mind the ways that this country is changing demographically. It's very much a part of their political decision-making. And what I have found with Republican voters is when you ask them about that, oftentimes they will own that choice.
1: And Greg in Mount Olive, you're on WNYC. Hi, Greg.
0: Hi, Brian.
2: Hi, Brian. Yeah, I, very interesting. Thank you for, for getting this on. I'm glad I came across it. Um, you brought up the point that many of these 20 GOP members are in insular districts where they don't have to worry about electability and answering to their uh, the larger Republican um, uh, leadership yeah because they're
1: in insular districts yeah. right
2: so how but but will that reflect on the other members of the gop the fact that that the larger uh, republican party appears not to be able to to govern effectively
1: Instead, can we answer that question at this point
0: well i would say for one it already has the fact that republicans have looked like a a, a, a kind of party that does not have its, I don't want to say the bad word, but together has um, already hurt them. And I would say that was true in the midterms. And so we are they have a, a, a smaller congressional majority than they probably should uh, based on what we thought were the winnable districts heading into November. But that's par- partially because there is some evidence that voters judged them to be a party that was flirting with the extremes. And so I definitely think it has paid them an electoral cost, but it's a difference between where that is coming from, because that's true in a general election, that's true in the midterms, that was true even between the penalties Trump paid among many voters in his presidential election. But in the primary, there is still a plurality of Republican voters who actually see some of this behavior as a good thing. And so before you can get to that general, You have to get to a primary, particularly when we're in the presidential election cycle. And so I think that's where a lot of these lawmakers' heads are, even so, to the caller's point, there is a real electoral cost um, that many voters have already placed on this Republican Party.
1: So this is a Republican voter, Michael Sprang. Uh, Just tell me what, what state he's from or what district, if you remember (laughs)
0: <laughs> Brian, this was three months ago. I'm not sure. If, I don't remember from the name. Michael Spring. he was from Michigan.
1: Uh, he might have been from Michigan. I'm not sure. He talks here about how he thinks the Democrats are a bigger threat to democracy than the Republicans.
0: Yes, and this then, was a Michigan. You know,
1: Here's the clip here. We'll do the clip first.
2: And then, you know, now with, with Biden basically saying, you know, anybody who doesn't agree with me is I can't remember how he put it, you know, a uh, threat to democracy, I think is what he said. You know, it's just if you take the Obama years, that was kind of, I think, the beginning of the breakdown to where the divisions started getting really deep, not only along racial lines, but also along political lines. Mm-hmm. And then the beginning of the Trump presidency, you know, when all of a sudden you had half the Democratic caucus saying, oh, well, not my president. And they started these endless, ridiculous impeachment proceedings. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just gotten worse
1: common sentiments about the end there, the um, ridiculous impeachment proceedings and democracy as he perceives it?
0: Absolutely. And I would say that that speaks to what we've been, we've been seeing this wing push uh, 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 Kevin McCarthy on. A little bit about that voter. This was someone from Michigan who had voted for Obama in 2008, had very recently considered themselves a pretty swing independent and was open to what the obama administration would be but this was a voter speaking back to our kind of uh, uh point about race and cultural centrality and and the kind of trump voter radicalization this was a voter that mentioned uh how barack obama treated the trayvon martin protest in terms of uh, in terms of pushing him away from the democratic party
1: Astead <laughs> herndon national political reporter for the new york times thank you so much i really enjoyed this let's do it again